Hello sword people, welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training and bring the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. I'm here today with Erin Fitzgerald, who is a historical martial arts practitioner, graphic artist, and has a really unusual day job, which we'll get into in the interview. So, without further ado, Erin, welcome to the show. Hello, Guy. How are you? Thanks for having me. <laughs> um, I'm fine and all the better for seeing you. It's been a very long time since we were last bashing each other over the head. Yeah, when when was that? Was that maybe WMEW oh. of... Baby. No, no, it was it was probably when I visited Chicago in 2017. Okay. It was a yeah. long time ago. That is a long time ago. And and am I right in thinking you are in Chicago at the moment? I am. Rare occurrence, one might say, but yes, I am. <laughs> why why a rare occurrence? I thought you lived there. I do. I do travel a lot though, so you know. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I almost consider traveling my second home, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, cool. absolutely. Um, so yes, there's 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 the home you live in half the time, and then there's airports and airplanes for the rest. Oh yeah, 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 for sure. Um, okay, so why don't, why don't we start with your day job because you have a different view of historical time frames than most historical martial arts practitioners, I think. Um, so what do you actually do for a living? So I work in the field of paleontology. Um, Yeah, I am a fossil preparator. So we are considered one of the, like a lab technician uh, in the Mm -hmm. realm of paleo. And uh, so what I do basically is I, well, actually first, um, I've been doing this for quite some time. I've been, um, I started volunteering in uh, paleontology right when I graduated high school. It was like one of those things and... uh, some of my uh, paleo friends at the field museum will uh, attest to this, that uh, I'm like the annoying kid when I'm, you know, 16, like, can I please play with fossils? And, uh, you know, no, not until you're 18. So, uh, so when I was 18, I finally got to the museum and started working with fossils. And uh, paleo is um, one of those fields where uh, there's not a lot of funding for it. You know, everyone loves dinosaurs uh, and fossils, but, uh, but yeah, you really have to uh, express the importance of say what our job does for the, for uh, the bigger picture uh, uh, to, to get people to fund it type of thing. So most of our funding comes from people that love what we do. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so there's a lot of room for, for people to come in and volunteer doing this. And that's how I got started. And I've been doing it ever since then. And that was in 2000 when I started. Wow. So yeah, I've been doing this for quite some time. Um, and so what I, what I do basically is uh, I help my boss. Uh, he is a scientist in paleontology and he decides where we're going to be digging up fossils around the world and I go and I help him do that and as we bring these fossils back I and a couple other preparators in our lab here uh, in Chicago uh, open them up and we clean them and we get them all ready for uh, scientists to study so okay so so 
you how do you open them up how do you clean them what's what's the process yeah so we have a, a series of tools and uh, we we basically when we're out in the field we have how we dig out how we dig dinosaurs out of the ground we we create what we call jackets and uh, we're we have a process of encapsulating the bone along with the surrounding rock uh, okay. to bring it back safely and it's it's covered in a in, in layers of of aluminum foil plaster and burlap and so when we bring these back to the lab we have grinders that we can open up this uh, shell like a candy coated okay. shell so hang on so why do you wrap it in i mean i, I get why you you'd want to sort of cover it and preserve it but presumably just like put it in a wooden box i mean why wrap it with <laughs> aluminium foil and i'm not telling you how to do your job i i believe that it is, what you're doing is no doubt the scientifically correct thing to do but I don't understand why you'd wrap it in aluminium foil or and then cover it in plaster that doesn't make sense to me go on okay so so fossils are uh, essentially uh, bones that have turned to stone yep. and uh, the fossils that um, that we dig up are uh, about 65 million years or older so we're digging okay. primarily dinosaur material yeah. Um, so you're talking about, you know, 65 million years plus of time. So mm. these bones don't always look like bones anymore. They're fragmented. They're in splinter. They're in a lot of pieces. And sometimes you get uh, a bone that's uh, pretty perfectly preserved, and that's more rare than not. Um, okay. So getting these mater- this material back uh, without causing more damage is uh, our utmost importance. Mm-hmm. Um, so the aluminum foil is what we use as a separator. So um, uh, the, the plaster will stick to the rock and, and, uh, yeah. and the bone. So if we were to open this up, this, this shell that we have created would stick to everything and then make it very okay. problematic to get off. So, so the aluminium foil is to keep the plaster and the bone separated. Correct. And the plaster is there basically just to hold everything in, hold everything still while yes. you move it around. Yep. Uh, okay. Yep. Right. Because, because otherwise the fragments would all mix up and go yep. to places and you might not know where they came from and, Definitely. and what. Okay. So I have an, an image in my head of like a femur, uh-huh. which has, which has been shattered. Sure. Like, like somebody's had a nasty traffic accident or something. Yeah. Right? And so you have, in the earth, you have what you recognize as a femur with all these bone fragments, and you want to keep everything in the same place relative to each other. And so you cover it up with foil. I presume you'd, you'd have to kind of dig out the whole bit of earth. Yes. Right? And then wrap all of that in aluminium foil. And then cover it all in plaster, let it all set, and then when you pick it up and move it, all the bits inside are going to stay where they are. Yes. Okay. Right. Now I get it. Yes. <laughs> all right. Now there is a process to how we get it out. Um, you know, because you're. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, how on earth do you do that? <laughs> yeah. So we 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 first have to find the edges of the bone because yeah. most fossils that we will find are are disarticulated so they're not um you know uh leg bone is it connected to the knee bone you know type of thing yeah. 
uh, that that is very rare to have an animal articulated like that, uh, and mm -hmm. that usually requires them to be buried very rapidly. Um, they're also prized specimens to be that way because then you know exactly what bone you have, and most bones most bones are identifiable. Mm -hmm. Say, for instance, a uh, you know a femur versus a, a tibula tibia or a fibula, right? But uh, when you're yeah. getting to your series of vertebrae, you've got dozens of them. And uh, how do you know what your, your D5 is from your D6 unless they're In articulated? Order, yeah. So, you know, and, and so there's minor differences between these animals sometimes. Sometimes there's bigger differences. But, you know, how do you decide what species is what based on, you know, maybe a couple vertebrae? So uh, keeping everything together is, is important. So... So when we find an animal, when we find bones, we will we will look for the edges of where that skeleton is going to be, and mm -hmm. uh, you know because a lot of it's disarticulated, you might have like a femur here, and then maybe the lower leg bone, you know, maybe ten feet away, and and so there's a series of like digging around, and as you find the perimeter of these of these bones, even if they're isolated, like say you have an isolated femur, mm -hmm. you'd find the edge of it, and then you're going to start. We would add a, 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 a consolidant to that. That's a, a it's either a water soluble consolidant or a, or a more chemical, like an acetone um, based solvent that uh, will keep. Every, it's like a glue that's archival. It's like an archival glue that keeps it together okay. temporarily it, until it, we get so back. So, what's it made of? What kind what's of glue the, is it? The consolidant. I mean, I, I'm I'm a, I'm a woodworker, so I I know a bit about about glues and I know my hide glue from my polyvinyl acetate from my ethyl vinyl acetate and so on so what is what kind of glue would you use to kind of keep it all together uh yeah so so when we have access to say uh a chemical uh like acetone mm -hmm. which uh evaporates pretty quickly we will yeah. use a, a paraboloid b72 okay um and so that uh, that will allow it to soak into the bone. It's 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 archival and stable. It won't degrade, at least not so much that we are aware of. So so by archival you mean it will remain stable for a very long time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and reversible. So having something that's reversible is also important to us because yeah. uh, you know we want to be able to undo glue joints if we had to. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so you basically have this like acetone water-based glue that is reversible, and you soak that into the area to basically keep stick everything together. Yeah. To, yeah. Yeah. So. Because again, you know, earth, earth, earth is going to fragment. So, yeah. as we're trenching around these bones, because now, say, we find a femur, man, you know, and the rest of the animals there too. You know, maybe maybe a couple feet away. But the more the the less that we can get. It, it's kind of a give or take, right? So if you take a whole femur out, like if you take a sauropod femur out of the ground, right? The sauropod femur might be like six feet long. Like that's wow. a huge chunk of stone. That's a big bone. Stone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a big bone. Um, right. So if we're taking more than that, then we're going to be requiring significantly more heavy equipment to get it out of the ground. So, yeah. so sometimes disarticulated bones works in our favor and mm -hmm. sometimes it doesn't. But uh, – you know, so if we're going to trench around, we find this femur, we're going to try to get that out of the ground. We would start by finding those edges, consolidating, and then we're going to start trenching down. So we'll start removing the rock around it to go down. Okay. 
And then we're yeah. going to start putting a cap on it because now it's going to start getting fragile. So we'll put that tinfoil down. We'll put that plaster and burlap coating, a couple mm -hmm. layers of that until it's pretty solid. And then we'll start trenching down even more until we get down to where we can start undercutting the bone. And so right. ultimate goal is to get the bone on a pedestal Yeah. Um, to where... So how just just to be clear so you're digging you're digging it out so un, and as you're undercutting it so you're digging underneath the bone and you end up with basically a little pedestal of earth or rock or whatever that it's sitting on mm -hmm. and everything else has now been wrapped in tin foil and plaster and it's got this glue soaked through it okay yeah yeah, yeah. fascinating yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um and yeah and so once we get it on a pedestal you know particularly for large animals it's pretty safe to say there's probably nothing directly underneath that femur if there was we would have found it by digging under it with yeah. our tools and if there's not then then once we have that pedestal uh that that mushroom shape mm -hmm. pretty preserved and, and and encapsulated then we can crack the bottom and then roll it over so once we get that pedestal cracked then a whole bunch of us can get on one side roll it on its back and now we yeah. have now we have the now we have the bone out of the ground, yeah. and uh, and now it's upside down, and then we just have to clean out whatever's in the bottom because again, uh, that that earth that superfluous earth there is is making weight. We want to try yeah. to get rid of some of that, um, and then we close it up, and now we have a, a perfectly encased bone. Okay, and yeah. and then use, you use whatever heavy lifting equipment you need to move it and transport it back to the museum. And then you then it's there in the museum mm -hmm. and you get out your angle grinder and you start cutting away the plaster. Yeah. Yeah. We get, yeah. Get our grinders okay. out, start cutting that out. And then, so we kind of reverse what we did in the field sort of in a way. Okay. So Sorry, I, I have to ask, have yeah. you ever cut through the foil into the bone with your angle grinder? Am I supposed to admit to that on? because <laughs> okay i i've i've done a lot of kind of craft type stuff woodwork mostly and angle grinders they are super hard to control really precisely so so mostly what we use i'm trying to think of what an angle grinder uh is going to look like it's, what a, we it's a rapid it's a rapidly spinning disc on a on a handle oh okay so then so let me take that back we don't use angle we don't use angle grinders Okay. We, we will use like a, we use what we call a grinder, but there's like a, there's a really, really large Dremel bit on the end of it. So maybe okay. like a, like a ball the size of, mm. you know, like a large marble. Yeah. And that spins. And then, so that, we wouldn't go any deeper than say that the diameter of that, of that ball. Okay. So yeah, uh, certainly something that's a disc um, would be dangerous for us because we can't, yeah, Control would be an issue, and then how deep we're going. So, yeah. so our our plaster, depending on the side of the bone, like say for a femur, your plaster might be about uh, a half an inch deep okay. of coating around the bone, and uh, and so if you're using like our our Dremel bit, our larger Dremel bit grinders, uh, you shouldn't really go through too much of that, and your your diameter, your your the hole that you're well. The, the line that you're creating, that perimeter going around the, the, the jacket being the diameter of that bit, 
you can see how deep you're going. Yeah, you can see what you're doing. Yeah, you can see what you're doing. And that's important. So anything thinner than that is is really dangerous. So, you know, I mean, accidents happen, um, (laughs) you know, professionals like us make less of those mistakes than new people but <laughs> you know and and to be fair we're not uh we're not we do take some of the earth with the bones so if you are if you're eyeing up the shape of the jacket um and you're going about part way down like you're not going to drill off the top because yeah you know you're going to hit bone so you come around the side right yeah okay so you're, you're opening it up where you know it's earth not bone yeah 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 okay. yeah and sometimes you you don't always gauge it that that well but um you know at least okay. if you're gonna make a mistake it's very minimal okay yeah no, i mean we don't want to ever make mistakes but uh yes you know, but everyone makes mistakes. we're only human so yeah Okay, so then, you, so then you've cracked open your plaster thing and you have basically the glue-soaked bone and earth. Then what happens? So then we put it under a microscope and we they, we have our specialized tools that we, they're called jackhammers. Or not, they're not called jackhammers. They're like little jackhammers. They're called air scribes. So they're an air, air compressed. Okay. An air scribe, yeah. So it's like a scribe. Yeah. Um, uh, used used with a, a compressed air so mm-hmm. it's like a really small hand jackhammer so it's got a little okay. needle um maybe about uh maybe about 16th of an inch wide very small yep. and you keep it sharpened to a point and and then it 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 kind of drills off the rock off of the bone and we use it we do that under a microscope and so that requires a bit of finesse um and okay, if you're using a microscope, you must be doing a very small area any given time. And if your sauropod femur is six feet long, that is going to take you weeks. Yep. Yep. Wow. Yep. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. And okay. So. Yeah, I mean, if if you were to see me work, uh, you probably would not see me moving very much now i can see me moving quite a bit under the scope but from 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 not being under the scope you probably wouldn't notice me moving around very often and you know you might get a couple square inches of stuff prepared a day wow and that depends on the quality of the depends on the quality of the bone and it depends on the quality of of the rock around it we call that matrix so the, Mm -hmm. the quality of the matrix like some bones um are very well preserved and so the that rock around it flakes off pretty easily and then sometimes yeah. it sticks not even glue related just sticks and uh yeah. and that requires a, a slower process um and then sometimes you have a, a coating of hematite which is like an iron it's an iron based um uh, mineral around the bone and that's that that stuff is is I hate to say hard as a rock, but yeah. <laughs> so, so, so basically what you're saying is that um, your job is not really a spectator sport. No, <laughs> not at all. But it's, it's exactly the kind of job that all sorts of people, particularly like, you know, kids who are mad about dinosaurs, they're like, I want to be doing that. I want to be digging up dinosaur bones for a living. That's my job. And it sounds like the actual job itself um is 
much harder than it sounds. Well, so it depends on what job that you want, right? If you want the job of my boss, who's a paleontologist, you would need a PhD for that. And, uh, you know, and, and, uh, you get to study, you get to study dinosaur bones or, or any other fossil, but you know, I mean, why not study dinosaur bones? I mean, they're the best, Of course. but, uh, <laughs> you know, or you do what I do, which didn't require a degree. Um, okay. but it requires experience and, uh, you know, and then you can still be in paleontology without needing to have that formal education. Um, and I feel like I just downgraded my job, but, uh, you know, the reality of it is, is yeah, most of the jobs, most of the, yeah, most, if you're going to have the degree would be to be the scientist, right? right. The scientist okay. naturally would need a lab filled with staff. Right. Okay. And, and. So what's your favorite bit of the job? Oh, I mean, I get to play with dinosaur bones all day, you know? Um, and, and part of what I like the most about, I mean, dinosaurs aside, right? What, what I find to be most fun about it is, is putting all the puzzle pieces together because it's one giant puzzle. Right. Okay. So you've got your, your femur, which has been smashed by, I don't know, a T-Rex or something in a fight and... You're then trying to reassemble all these little tiny pieces of bone into what the original bone would have looked like. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and it's it's maybe less about um, the death of the animal that gets these bones into little pieces and more about just erosion. Oh, sure. But it's much yeah. more glamorous to say, you know, well... It, this this thing got killed in a fight with a T-Rex and that's why the leg is broken. Or, you know, a rock slide two million years after the animal died smashed up the skeleton a bit. I mean, come on. Fair. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> you know what's really cool, though, is when we do find evidence of, of, uh, of, um, of traces of life left in the animal. So, um, say, bite marks or uh, disease or uh, fighting, so like claw marks and things like that. Um, oh. You know, Sue, Sue's um, the, the famous T-Rex here at the Field Museum, um, and she's, she's famous for a lot of things. If you ever come to, the, to Chicago, uh, get a chance to see her. She has her own uh, room now dedicated to her, and uh, they go through... Uh, and highlight certain aspects of her skeleton. And she has a lot of injuries that she had developed when she was alive. And then uh, you could say suffer through, because I, I don't think mm -hmm. I would want any of those injuries. Uh, and live to tell the tale. We, we um, I think they're still studying whether or not some of them actually contributed to her death. But she has a lot of evidence of, of fighting and, uh, and surviving. And she's wow, fascinating. So and, okay, evidence that would survive in fossil form must be damaged to bone that's then healed. Correct. Right. So, so T-Rexes could get, I don't know, a broken wrist or something and survive long enough for that to heal completely and then they get killed later by something else. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Huh. Yeah, because yeah, you, you sort of imagine that, okay, if a dinosaur gets at all injured, that's it. It's just dead. If, because, gets a what because 
if if a dinosaur gets injured at all, one oh, would yeah. assume that it would just you know scavengers or predators or whatever would come and finish it off, and that would be that. But um, okay, in humans, in human remains, fossilized human remains, um, that same sort of evidence is used to support a story of human beings looking after their injured um, tribe members, right? And nursing them back to health. Sure. I don't think there's a similar story going on with T-Rexes. Is that right? Not that we know of. (laughs) Okay, because that begs the question, why do we accept that as evidence of people looking after their injured tribe members um, but we don't accept the exact same fossil evidence of a broken bone that has clearly healed and therefore did not kill the person basically the person who had their bone broken survived long enough for the bone to heal right that same evidence in a t-rex isn't used to support a story around t-rexes actually living in herds and looking after their injured or damaged members yeah don't know the answer to that. Well, it's just worth it's know. worth thinking about, isn't it? Because it? It, it is. Well, I mean, it happens in nature now. You know, we just sure. attribute dinosaurs to regular wildlife nowadays. I mean, yeah, injured animals are certainly uh, prey for other sca- you know other well scavengers or people looking for a very quick, easy meal. But T. Rex at the time was the top of the food chain. Okay, so do we see? Do we see similar things like, for example, a lion is the top of its food chain. If a lion gets a broken leg or something, I don't think they would be expected to survive without human intervention. Well, breaking a leg is a serious injury. Yeah. So, what, so what, what kind of injuries did Sue survive? Uh, Sue, um, ha- so I'm trying to recollect this. Uh, Sue does have some uh, fused vertebra in her tail. So. Okay. Um, I need to go back and look exactly what's causing okay. that. But okay, so we're not talking about like a broken leg. It may be like a cracked rib that healed, or a or a tail that wasn't working quite right for a while and then healed. Yeah, yeah, uh, okay. yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I I can't imagine that an animal that would be requiring to either get away or require mm-hmm. its legs for the use of catching its prey, having that broken. I mean. Even yeah. even a lay, even a femur break in a human is a is a major major problem. Yeah, it's and, a life threatening condition. Oh yeah, yeah. I can only imagine it's significantly worse for an animal. Yeah. Huh. Who requires that? But okay. Well, this this conversation went in directions I was not expecting. This is fascinating. <laughs> um, all right. Okay. But I think I think we should probably because most people listening like swords probably more than they like dinosaurs. I um, don't know about let, that. <laughs> well, I think, given the topic of the show generally, um, so you, you've been doing historical martial arts for quite a while now. I know I've, I've known you for years. Um, but what, what drew you to historical martial arts and how did that start? Uh, so I've always been doing martial arts. Um, I was doing uh, some judo back when I was in high school. So this idea of wanting to uh, have fitness and then a sense of self-defense was mm-hmm. always intriguing for me. Um, what kind of got me into um, historical fencing that we do now uh, was kind of a, um, 
I think I remember asking my mom to buy me a, a, a book like, well, I mean, this would be cool. Cause you know, we all, I, I love the whole idea of fantasy and then what that, that is. And then, and then loving that into a subset of just loving uh, you know, the medieval period and the Renaissance and that type of, that type of idea of chivalry and pageantry. Um, it was very, very intriguing for me. And so, you know, I had a friend again at the field museum, uh, who was like, Oh, uh, yeah, I do. Uh, I'm learning how to, to do medieval longsword. And it was just like, you're doing what? How, how did you do that? How, how did you, how did you find that? Like, I don't even know if I would have even considered looking for that in, in real time. Like I can find yeah. a book, you know, people are maybe learning, teaching this by book, but like, there's like someone I can go to here in Chicago that will teach me that. And sure enough, there was. And I think the next time that they offered that opening, I was like, boom, I signed up for it. So, and I've been doing that since then. So that was the Chicago Soul Play Guild. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and who was the friend? Uh, Debbie Wagner. Okay. A friend of mine in paleo, no less. So, you know, we, wow. we have overlapping friends. <laughs> and and did, did your mum buy you the book? She did. What book was that? I prefer to not say. Uh, oh, oh, I know which book that it's was. It's the book that shall not be named. <laughs> right, okay, good, good, good. Yeah, understood, understood. Moving swiftly on. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, listen, okay, just... If you've been you don't know any martial... better at the time. Let okay, me just... okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you've been in the historical martial arts world a long time, you know what book we're talking about. Yeah. If you haven't, listeners, and you really want to know, I will put it in very, very small font at the bottom of the show notes. Okay, so that so that people who have no idea what we're talking about can can be kind of brought into the into the fold. But we're not going to we're not going to mention it on air. God no, Heavens that would no. be bad. <laughs> Very bad. <laughs> um, okay, so I feel you, bad. So I even you, said anything. <laughs> <laughs> so you're um, you've been doing mostly medieval combat with the CSG. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay, and that, that's that's your your area of preference. All right. You're, you never went into the rapier or more modern stuff. I think I did rapier. Um, certainly not the modern stuff. Uh, I did rapier briefly uh, to to just help aid in the the medieval side of the school. But uh, um, you know, the the medieval track is my it's my jam. Okay, so it's why medieval? Again, it's just like. I, I, I just love the pageantry. I love the pageantry of armor. I love I love um, just the, the aesthetic of, of um, the clothing, you know, the, the, the chivalry. And uh, it's not that I don't uh, get into the Renaissance. I mean, surely enough, uh, Fiori is early Renaissance already anyway. But, uh, but you know, when you get into, to say, the rapier, uh, it's, just, it's just not... Um, I mean, the rapier is a beautiful weapon, um, and people that that are good at it uh, make it look flawless. Uh, it's just not my, it's just not my thing. That's fair. I mean, some people don't like dinosaurs. Oh, 
<laughs> How could you say such a thing? It's true. <laughs> I'm very sorry, but it's true. All right. Oh, so, no. so I mean, when I when I think of you swinging weapons around, I think of you in full plate armor. That's awesome. That's, that's 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 the mental image I have. And and if you wouldn't mind sending a photograph of you in your armor for the show notes, that'd be great because yeah, um, sure. then people can see what kind of stuff you're into. Um, but do you actually prefer armored combat to unarmored? Oh, that is a tough question to answer. Um, yeah, I, I don't know how to answer that. Uh, you know, um, it's a love hate relationship with the armor. Um, but I, I love it anyway. Um, why, why do you hate the armor? Oh, because you're wearing 65 pounds of steel and that's, it's, it's, can be cumbersome. It's, it's, can be heavy. It, you can't see anything through it and, uh, it limits your mobility. So it's, it's certainly requires uh, a, a level of fitness that if you falter on a little bit, that armor is just very yes, exhausting, you know? So, I mean, I love it. Right. Because, uh, again, you get into that pageantry and, um, I don't know. I mean, I think wearing plate armor is pretty darn sexy. Well, you know, I when I put armor on, it I just feel invulnerable. Yeah. Like, like you know, it's like you're six inches taller and like ten times stronger, and you can you can literally somebody swings a sword at your head, and you can just laugh in their face and let it bounce off your armor while you gut them like a fish. <laughs> That's you the can. feeling, right? It is a feeling. Although That's I don't feeling. have, I don't have full plate. Um, okay. Now, if I had full plate, like a little bit later period armor, I would feel more vulnerable. But I remember fighting my first deed in 20... When was that? 2019, I fought in the deed at WMW and um, feel like I got my ass handed to me by... Uh, um, you can by, say that. You can, okay. you can say whatever you want on the show. Yes. <laughs> we, we, have, we have an explicit rating, so you can say whatever the fuck you like. It's fine. Excellent. Fucking love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I basically feel like I had my ass handed to me by um, um, oh god, what's her name? Um, Scott Farrell's one of Scott Farrell's students. Um, her name escapes me now. Just um, just pop it in an email. I'll stick it in. The I will. Yeah, but uh, she was in significantly more plate armor than I was, um, and there was like I can't get past these pieces of armor but like i have my belly completely exposed and like you know just a lot of so there's a difference in uh so so if if i had fuller plate armor a more a more full plate armor i would feel more vulnerable i i do feel a bit vulnerable but not as invulnerable or or yeah i would like uh, to yeah i've i've never been particularly interested in like brigandines and like cloth armor and that kind of stuff it's like the full the full steel custom made to fit perfectly armor of gorgeousness yeah that's that 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 kind of does it all, yeah. all these sort of cheaper older versions yeah it's like no no you gotta you gotta you gotta go full steel if you want to get that feeling of well okay i mean like you said your your belly was exposed. Yeah. Right? So so you didn't have steel plates over your guts. 
Right. I didn't have a fold. I didn't have any folds or anything. No. Okay. So what? What were you wearing? Uh, I have a full plate, a full male shirt. Oh, okay. Yes, but a spear will go right through that. Right, and so will a sword point. <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, no, that's, that's like showing up naked. I like no, you don't want to do that. <laughs> I mean, it's not exactly modern technology, but you know, from the 1380s onwards, you know, the, those Milanese, they got their armor to the next level. Um. So yeah, I yes, I think definitely you should you should steal some dinosaur bones from the museum, sell them on the dinosaur <laughs> black market, and spend the money on proper armor. Wow, you just endorse selling dinosaur bones on the black market. Well, absolutely. Because <laughs> everyone can tell I'm completely serious, right? And 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 yeah, whenever whenever I plan crimes, I always do it in a public way like this and publish it on the internet so that anyone anyone can hear it and go, ah, that's a jolly good wheeze for a for a crime. <laughs> <laughs> so when he really does it, there's no way he's serious about that because he just. Right. He just gave exactly. it away. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So it couldn't possibly be me. What idiot? It couldn't would possibly be him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But you know, the more yeah, I I believe you know my 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 armor is uh, early early Milanese, so it's it is is right there around thirteen ninety. Uh, doesn't mm -hmm. have the folds, but uh, I I guess I could have the folds, but. You know, okay. I'm a I'm a wee little person, so uh, if I wanna, if I decide I'm gonna add on to my armor, I gotta build up to that for sure. Yeah, and and you gotta get somebody to make it to really fit. Yeah, that makes all yeah. the difference. Um, it does. That that's the other thing is that if your armor doesn't fit well, it's miserable to be in. That's right. Um, okay, so uh, I've seen a picture of this astonishing version of Fiore's Senyo page. Um, what is the story there? So that was, so obviously I, I ended up getting my degree in art. So I, I am an artist and a lover of dinosaurs when I was a wee little kid. So, you know, I, uh, when I went up for my free scholar rank at the CSG, mm -hmm. um, I had proposed to Greg, um, Greg Maley, our instructor, mm -hmm. um, can I do... We, we have to do a series of uh, papers and we have to do like a, like a big research project uh, to rank yeah. up. And, uh, and I had requested, can I do something art-based? Art and uh, he said, yeah, I would love to have a, have a, a big picture of, like a, of the Sanyo in the studio, um, like a life-size, Fiore-size mm -hmm. Sanyo. And, uh, and I said, well, uh, that's going to be quite large because... You know, if you want the whole Sanyo, not only do you have to have Fiore, the guy in the center, to be the size of Fiore, then you have to add yeah. on all the animals. And so we ended up uh, not quite getting it that big because uh, that might have been almost too big for what we would have. Yeah. Yeah. For, yeah. And so, uh, so yeah. So I, I basically over two years, I researched um, a bit about the Sanyo and... Uh, we we put together uh, we actually put together the animals from the Pisani Dosi with the Fiore from the Getty and we mm -hmm. merged those two Sanyos together mm -hmm. and uh, and created uh, 
uh, a color version of, of the Sanyo to have up as a teaching tool. So it not only does it make for a lovely centerpiece for the studio, uh, but it's a teaching tool. So when Paul, when 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 Greg wants to uh, talk about what the Sanyo means and how we use the Sanyo um, in in swordplay, uh, he'll refer to that. But yeah, so I did that for my 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 main project. Okay, so what what is it? Oh, is it just a giant piece of paper or cloth or how did you do it? It's on canvas. It's on okay. canvas. And originally, we we wanted to hang it like a tapestry. Uh, that ended up. Mm -hmm. About a couple years later, causing some damage, which uh, I will never do that again. How, how do you mean hang it like a tapestry and causing damage? Oh, we hemmed it um, and then put uh, put loops in there to to have uh, bars so that we could hang it. We could yeah. hang it uh, from the seat from from the wall like a tapestry yeah. would hang, like a cloth yeah. tapestry. Um, didn't go so well for uh, canvas and oil paint. I did a little bit of warping and cracking, so I ended oh, up. Oh, yeah. oh! So, so it's oil. So basically, the it's, picture is oil on canvas. Correct. Correct. Ah, and if you hang it like a tapestry, it's going to put folds and things in the in the cloth, which will. It didn't yeah, exactly okay. put folds <sighs> in it. It just started to to warp a little bit, like a bit of the humidity contributed to it, um, okay. and then probably. Because normally an oil painting would be the canvas would be stretched on a frame. True, true. Um, I have seen plenty of oil paintings that are not stretched, mm -hmm. that are typically rolled up. Um, and I had a lot of advice. Uh, I, I, I I got advice from some professional paint companies about it, and uh, uh, they said oh, we don't advise doing it this way. Uh, I guess okay. you could, and if you're going to, here's what you would do. Um, but we still don't advise it, and uh, I should have just listened to them because. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so how how is it hung now? It's stretched. Right. We ended up stretching it. Okay, so you built a frame around it yeah. and stretched it on that. Oh, yeah. Okay, that makes that makes sense. And then I repaired it, and uh, and now it's it's hanging it's hanging back up in the studio. So. Excellent. Yeah. So you you painted it. I mean, presumably you didn't have an easel big enough to stretch the whole thing out on at once. So you must have painted it sort of bit by bit. Yeah, so I basically took my closet in my mm -hmm. apartment because I have cats and oil yeah. painting and turpentine and mineral spirits and that's pretty toxic. And yeah, so I I, I, I essentially kind of dismantled my closet mm -hmm. and designated one whole wall to this canvas, which basically took up the whole wall. And I would go yeah. in there and uh, once I had the, had it up, I would transfer the image and then paint it. And it took me about maybe about a year and a half to paint. And I would paint so how, a little bit at a time. How did you transfer the image? Uh, I did it with a grid. Oh, okay. So, so I did you, it with a, you didn't project it. You just no. you, you had a grid of squares and, and just tracked it that way. Yeah. So what I tend to do is I blow up my drawing mm -hmm. up to scale. And I, 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 I print out the size. I print out the sections that I need to transfer. Mm -hmm. And then I, I, I grid, I grid the image and then I grid the canvas and then I transfer the drawing that way. And some okay. things that I will have drawn in my program, because I digitally draw everything first and right. then I'll print it at scale and then I will trace that onto the image as well or onto oh, the okay. canvas. Huh. Well, that's, that's quite a process. 
So, yeah. oh, did you did you copy the text over? And if so, was it the Pisani Dossi text or the Getty, Getty text? There's no text. There's no text. Okay. Left no text. Out. Just just yeah, just the animals and Fiore, and then I I completed it with um, a border to look a little bit like a manuscript page. So. Um, a majority of my research that took place was studying um, the design of Fiore's border, okay, border design in his books, and they're a little bit different amongst the different books. But then I would um, pull um, a, a lot of the design that I find Fiore to be, uh, at least whoever's painting his manuscripts, mm-hmm. right. Uh, seem to be coming from a Bologna school, or at least inspiration from the Bologna tradition. So, um, or the Bolognese tradition. So I would take other illumination, medieval illumination from Fiore's time period in Bologna, and then kind of piece together uh, certain aspects that would fit in the space. And then, and that's how I came okay. up with the, with that border design. And then other symbolism. So I put the five petal rose in the design mm-hmm. as well to be very symbolic. Okay. Why particularly the five petal rose? Um, I wish I had my notes that I could pull from, but uh, there's a, a certain level of the Rosicurian rose that has symbolism for five, the number five, okay. for being the number of, of man. So. Mm-hmm. So you have your four animals. So the fior, so the symbolism in the Sanyo is all number numerology anyway, right? So you have sure. you have the elements. You have you have the number four, and then you have uh, Fiore, which represents number five, and he would be the fifth element for quintessence. Okay. Did Did you include the crowns, by the way? I did. Uh, okay, just so for it, Fiore. Ah, uh, okay. Because if you add in all the crowns and and colors on the animals. You get, I think, twelve pieces of gold. There's there's the sword hilts and there's the crowns and stuff. And if you, there's there's all sorts of things when you look at the Getty the version of the Getty manuscript at least, you can all of the numbers he's used so far, like the eight things you must know for the Abrazare and the five things for the dagger and the nine masters of the dagger and the twelve guards of the long sword and the seven blows of the sword and all these other things. Um, you can you can use the various elements of the Senyo to kind of as like a memory palace to, to hold those um, those groups together. Yeah. See, I um, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think the animals have crowns, though. Correct. Uh, collars. I think. No, the, the animals don't have crowns, but they have gold collars. Yeah. So, so they have the gold collars. Yeah, so they so everything was was transferred over. So you have mm-hmm. the four animal collars, you have Fiore's crown. Yeah. So that makes five, and then you have seven of the sword hilts. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's twelve together. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite a thing because I I just went and grabbed my facsimile mm-hmm. of um of the thing just to have a look at it, and of course. We will be putting a picture of uh, the original Senyo from the Getty manuscript in the show notes, but also you will, I hope, send me a decent picture of your amazing Senyo so we can stick that in the show notes so people can kind of see what we're talking about. 
Yeah, and uh, and I use a 24 karat gold leaf on them as well. Oh my God! How did yeah. you apply that to an oil painting? To a, a flexible uh, oil gilding glue, the yeah the 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 adhesive is an oil based, but it's flexible, yeah. so it would have worked for putting it on canvas. It wouldn't be on anything like say wood. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's, that is a hell of a project. Yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's in color, so now it's like oil paints. And and then uh, and then I had a, a conversation with uh, with Tasha Mele about uh, mm -hmm. what would Fiore be wearing? Like, what's he wearing? And what colors would they likely be? Okay, Everything. I think most, most listeners probably don't know Tasha and therefore aren't aware that she probably knows more about medieval arm, armor clothing than anybody else on the planet. Yeah, she's she's amazing. Um, and I'm a, Mele's her, her married name. Before her that, she name. was Tasha Kelly, is that Tasha right? Tasha Kelly, yeah. Yeah, okay, so, so you can find papers she's written under that name, I would guess. Definitely, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, and, and I think we even have a link. She actually did a whole blog on her her blog site about the project she did with me for the Sanyo. So I can, oh. I can give you a link to that. Yes, yeah, by all means, send me the link and I'll stick yeah. that in the show notes too. People are going to get a lot of stuff in these show notes. It's great. Yeah, exactly, right? All this, all this, all this education. Yeah. Um, okay, so just a slight, slight detour. Um, I know you've traveled a lot because we had a bit of difficulty scheduling this because you were gallivanting around France and what have you. And I imagine some of that travel is for work and you know, finding dinosaur bones, and some of that is for just fun. For vacation. Yeah. Um, so travel is obviously a really important part of your life. What's, what does it give you? You know, I have two, I have two times that I've traveled that have been the most, um, influential on me. And one was mm -hmm. in 2000, my mother, uh, did a family trip. Uh, to like a, a tour of like Hungary, uh, Austria and Germany. And, um, and, it, and before that, I mean, I had been to Canada. I think I was a wee little kid though. I mean, I don't remember much of it, but other than that, I had never been out of the country before. So it was, um, you know, I was 18 and, uh, and on this, uh, really neat, uh, tour of, of Europe. And, uh, it was, it was just very cool, uh, to, to, to see how other people did things. And of course, at the time, again, I was still, I was into, you know, fantasy and, and medieval things then too. So, you know, I got to see like old castles and, you know, got to, you know, go to museums and see some of their armor collection um, and the weapons and their uh, on display. And it was just very, it was very a, a unique experience for someone who's never done that before. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and after that, um, I started to kind of get a little bit of the travel bug of like when I got to be old enough to have a out of school and graduate and have a job and have money because you need that to travel yeah, sure. and uh, <laughs> finally get out and do things. Um, and when I started working uh, for the University of Chicago, that's where I, I work now, uh, working in paleontology, um, I got to travel for um, 
conferences and give give talks about what I do at work and uh, and that just was opportunities to, to, to go around the world without um, having to cost me really an arm and a leg because it's it's kind of sure. covered right so when um, my boss Paul Serino dr. Paul Serino he did most of his digging over in Niger in Africa uh, started in the early 90s and he's been trying to plan large excavation trips out there ever since. And, uh, and I had asked if I could go in 2011 and that trip was for six weeks. It was probably my most influential trip I've ever taken in my life, I would say, because, um, at that point, you know, you are, I may be going for work, but I'm going for an extended period of time where I'm, I'm living in a country that an undeveloped country where you really get to see how, you know, how other people, really how other people live in the world that you are very not accustomed to, you know, how they, how they get their food and what do they do with their time? And, you know, they don't even have close to the amount of resources or, or money that we have here or opportunities and things like that. And just what are they doing? And they ended up, I ended up coming home, uh, thinking um these are some of the nicest people i ever met in my life and uh and that kind of changed quite a bit of my worldview and ever since then i've just it's been more i need to do more of that i want to go to more places like that and and you know like uh i'm not sure the kind of saying i'm trying to think of but uh you know i would go anywhere just for just for the experience and to just to see. Just to see. And uh, and we went back in 2018 to the same mm-hmm. site. So we were there for two months. And uh, and I got to, I made some friends along the way. And I still keep in touch with them. And it just. Yeah. Uh, that It's fundamentally different living in a place for weeks at a time than just visiting it for a few days. It's not just, yes. it's, not, it's not just you get to do more of the stuff. It's you it's like you sink through the the surface layer and you start to see the layer underneath and then the layer underneath and the layer under. I mean, I was learning things about Finnish culture after living there for five years that you cannot possibly learn just by going there for a week. Right. Yeah. There is, there is, you know, and it's interesting because when I travel, I don't travel. I, I mean, I'm a tourist obviously, mm-hmm. but I try to not travel totally like a tourist. Like I want to live, I don't want to live in, I don't, I don't want to stay in, and I don't really want to do tours. I don't really want to stay in hotels. I would rather stay in places that like locals might stay or eat at places locals would want to eat. Or, you know, we did book a tour. We were just in Morocco last month and we did book a tour to basically a private tour to have someone just drive us, you know, for four days out to these different locations because I, I, I wasn't going to try to do the logistics to get there on my own. But uh, it was like, no, just take us where you think, where would you guys go? You know, or, or if you're going to, you know, one day we were just very exhausted. We were out in the desert and we were very exhausted. And we're just, let's just take the day off. And uh, we're just like, you know, he took us to this like little Berber village. We had this all this time to kill. He just took us to this Berber village and we got to have, mint tea with her and her her family and and her little her little house and uh and 
we just got to see her bake her bread and this clay thing that this like little clay oven that they they make out of the out of the ground and see their goats. Right. I mean, you just don't get to see this on a normal basis, and that's the kind of right. thing that I want to go see. I I don't need to go see all the things that these tourists want to be catered to. It's just not. Yeah, I mean, on my first trip to New Zealand, I took a few days to go to um, Rotorua, which is this area, this town where they have these amazing hot springs and everything. I've right? been Fantastic. there. Fantastic. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. And they, they have this this amazing kind of Maori culture mm-hmm. thing set up for the tourists. And it is great. It is yeah. definitely worth looking at. But one night when I was there, I was just wondering about, and I was there on my own, so I was just wondering about, and I just went into a restaurant because I was hungry and it was one of these sort of all you can eat, go back to the buffet thing. Um, I think it was Mongolian, sort of Mongolian sort of barbecue kind of place. Okay. And while I happened to be sitting there just having dinner, a huge, maybe 50 or 60 Maori people came in for a birthday party for a member of the family. This, this kid was 21, and that's a huge thing. Um, kind of like 18 for us, I guess. And it was this Maori kid's 21st birthday party. And I was just sitting there in the restaurant, and they got up and they did all kinds of, like, traditional singing. Right? Yeah. And, and it, was, it wasn't for the tourists. It was for their person who they loved. Yeah. Right. It was fundamentally different. It was like, and I just happened to be sitting there and just happened to be experiencing this, this sort of window into a culture I know nothing about. Right. That wasn't, wasn't created for, for foreigners to look at. It was them doing it for themselves. Sure. Fundamentally different. Yeah. 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 It's, it's those kinds of things that I, I find to be significantly more memorable. Yeah. And a sense of the culture too when you're when you're out there. Right. We uh right. we had a similar experience uh at the end of our 2018 trip in Niger too. A, a friend mm-hmm. of mine that was we were in one of the hotels in Agadez and uh we could hear this music going on in the background mm-hmm. and I said, "Oh, let's just go check it out." And so they don't we don't want us to go wandering off on our own, but you can go off with a couple of us at a time. And so mm-hmm. we went out and across the street and down the street there's uh, all this commotion and this woman uh, was like, oh, we're like, oh, what's going on? They're like, oh, you know, my, my son is getting married. And uh, and she's like, come on in. And we're like, no, 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 it's okay. No, 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 just come on in. And uh, okay, so we went in and we just got to, there's this Tuareg wedding happening in Fantastic. this little complex. <laughs> and it, we got to see so much of what you just, you just, you just don't, you just yeah. don't know. And uh, they, they're like, go, go, go dance. And, like, we don't know how to dance the way they're doing their thing. But you, you improvise, and everyone just <laughs> had a great time. They just – everyone just loved it. It was just – it was very, very unique. <laughs> okay, so there are a couple of questions I ask all of my guests. Um, and let's, let's go with the first one. Now, you've, you've done quite a lot of things and, I guess, most critically acted on your dinosaur obsession – um, but what is the best idea you haven't acted on? Oh, there's... <laughs> um, I think one thing that I always thought would be really cool to do 
would be to be a medieval innkeeper. A medieval innkeeper. Yeah. Okay. I, I always thought it would be so cool to to just have like a unique um ex- like hotel experience, but have it be, you know, like if I were to be the innkeeper, right, I would get to be in medieval garb all day long, which I think is fun. And have a have some type of tavern that would have similar things to 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 maybe what we would uh, think a, a medieval tavern would be like, you know, and you could have animals like I would want, like, I don't know, camels, like weird things that I just love having, like camels or llamas or goats, you know, uh, it just, but like to have music and, uh, and, uh, you know, your fire going and it would be a cool place to have, um, you know, like if it was here in Chicago, right, I would I would envision it as like so a place or like CSG could train. So if people were to stay at this inn, they'd have a bit of a, a medieval experience with like pigeon pie and stews mm-hmm. and this medieval type foods and ale and things like that. And then you could have like this thing out on the side where, you know, uh, people are fencing or there's a tournament going on. That just seems like so neat it'd be like it'd be like can you imagine having like a hotel where it's like a bunch of hobbit holes you know like i would definitely <laughs> stay there you know okay so i mean i've i've been to sort of medieval themed restaurants um but you're thinking of something a bit more immersive bit a bit more three-dimensional yeah yeah a little more authentic and when i talk about it's, it's interesting like when i talk to people about like going to Africa digging dinosaurs just like that sounds cool and then when I talk about it, they're like yeah I wouldn't want to do that that sounds horrible you know but uh, for the experience right I think that might be a little similar to this medieval taverns like well if you want the real medieval tavern experience people may not want to actually come but I think that would be the cool part about it but you know I know I, I think people might come I mean because the okay the food to make the food really authentic is quite hard um because I guess if we're talking properly medieval, then you won't have anything, um, any foods from the new world, like so no potatoes, no tomatoes, no chilies. Um, that's a bit restrictive. But, you know, there's, there's amazing medieval food to be had. And I guess as long as, as, long as um, the... Uh, as long as I guess it's safe, so you're not going to get a dose of plague with your porridge. <laughs> that would be a very medieval experience. <laughs> that would be a very medieval, but maybe, maybe not. And also, you probably don't want to. You probably don't want, um, you know, the the likelihood of like bed bugs and and body lice and things like that. Okay, fair. That. No, <laughs> we don't want to get um, too authentic. But it would be it would be a very cool idea to have like a you know fencing area next to I mean traditionally I mean there are there are plenty of examples of fencing schools which were attached to brothels. I don't think you're talking about a brothel. No. 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 Um so we'll leave leave, leave the brothely bit out of it. But you know, the food and the drink, yes. The the bucks and wenches no. Um but yeah, so having having a you know so, so diners could watch the fencing or maybe take part in the fencing if they're not too pissed. Yeah. That's not a bad idea. Okay. Yeah. So do you have any, do you think you're actually going to act on that? 
No. Why not? Well, I don't have the kind of money to do that, nor the free time. You know, like, uh, it, it's one of those things where it falls in that realm to me of you would, you would do it for the fun of it. You know, but it's interesting because, you know, I think when I was in, when we were in Germany at some point, we went to maybe it was like one of the oldest bars in Germany. If not the mm -hmm. oldest bar, it was like over a thousand years old and still running, but it was like packed. Yeah. It was just like, it's a cool thing to go do. Maybe similar to that, although certainly minus the actual historical authenticity of it. It's not really a thousand-year-old tavern, but, but you know, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, if it didn't work out, would I be okay with that kind of loss? Like, I don't know. You know, hmm. it would be like quitting my job and then being a full-time innkeeper, which sounds great. I just, you know, always think Although that I, kind of thing requires money. <laughs> I also, I'm not, I'm not sure that the, the sort of personality traits that make for a good, um, fossil preparator would make necessarily make for a good innkeeper. It's possible. I don't know. Because I, I, I'm imagining that, you know, you have to be very meticulous. You have to be very sort of organized. And that's not a bad thing for an innkeeper either, but um, primarily innkeepers have to be able to manage social interactions between drunk people. Yeah. I don't know if I'd be that good at doing that. I'll just hire someone to do that. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe you could be the the proprietor, but have a have a manager for for the. Um... <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. Okay. And, and and yeah, get the CSG in as bouncers. That would help. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay, so I'm guessing then, if somebody did give you a million dollars to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide, you wouldn't actually spend it on your inn. Is that no. right? No, no, no. How would no. you spend it? I would spend it on research. I would spend it on two things. I would spend it on research. Um, okay, in what way? I, because I think that there's a ton of things that we just don't know. Okay, you know? and what, what kind of research? I mean, what would you actually spend the money on? Would it be like hiring academics to do certain kinds of research or um, creating a journal to publish that kind of research or I didn't think about that, but actually a journal, a journal for publishing that would be, would be, would be great. Um, but we do have one periodic uh, actor duellatorum, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem to have a lot of traction. Well, you might say that we're a, a, a small group of, personal researchers in the in the realm of, of, of that type of historical material, no? Mm. No, I'm just thinking, like, where's the, where is the money going to go? Are you, you going to pay academics or offer scholarships or...? So, so that's, so, so, like, two things. One, one for the academic, academic side of it, I would want mm. to, I would want to put money into, to uh, paying scholars to do the research. So whether you're... Okay. So I think one of the best things that happened for at least um, for what we study is that everything mm -hmm. got digitized. Sure. You know, I think having access, uh, like a, a public domain to have for regular Joe folks to have access to this without having to go to the Getty Museum or, yeah. or say, yeah, I mean, yeah. So we have, we have Wichter now. So you yeah. give a chunk of money to Wichter now or would, 
something no, else? I wouldn't necessarily give it to Wichtenauer. I would give it to to museums that are actively going in and doing that kind of research, whether they're doing excavations, whether they're seeking out um, f like private collections that mm -hmm. would allow us to have access and to study that material. So it would be going okay. into museums, scholarships for maybe students that are doing master programs or PhD programs in that field um, for that type of research to actually give us some concrete information on you know, if we want to research something ourselves, where do we go for that? I mean, yeah, we could go to Week and Hour for that, but but um, who does the work that gets it to Week and Hour? Right, like the scanning it, find, finding the original documents and scanning them in, and yeah, like okay. for example, like the Florius was found in 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 my time of well, in our time of of uh, of of study. So yeah, in you about know, 2010. Yeah. So to find that in our time, right. It's, it's pretty darn cool. You know, I mean, there's gotta be more, there might be more, there may not be, but there might be. And I, we won't know until more people are, are actively looking for that. Um, okay. And so I would want to put money into that. And then the other side of it is to put money into scholarships for actual training. Mm-hmm. Um, for students that can't afford to go to say this or WMW or um, other um, events events that would have access to other other masters that that do this other mm -hmm. educators um, because you know I I learned great things from Greg as my instructor but I also learned great things from you or Sean Hayes or Christian Cameron. Um, that have maybe slightly different ways of viewing things that actually does nothing more than what well, does a lot of things, but expands our repertoire and how sure. we view things and helps us to process that information and, and learn from it in a, in a different than what we are, our core you know, instructor might be teaching us. It just gives us more information. And I think, you know, Students that may not have the ability to get that type of instruction, I think, miss something out of yeah, absolutely. Learning. Uh, yeah, get, getting students into basically to get exposed to different instructors in different fields. It's yeah. I mean, what I used to do when I was running my school in Helsinki is I would bring instructors over, maybe four instructors a year, so my students were continually exposed to lots of different instructors. Uh, for exactly that reason, because it's, and that was a lot more efficient than sending my students over to these various events. We did that as well, mm -hmm. but it's, it's much easier to move one person across the planet and have them teach, I don't know, 30 people for two days than mm -hmm. it is to move the 30 people across so they can get taught by the one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so that's, that's how I approach that same problem for my students. Um, but yes, making the students themselves more mobile is, is also a good way to do it. Because, you know, when you go to an event like WW or Salt Squatch or whatever, and you kind of see all these different things all at once, mm -hmm. that has its own particular magic to it. It does, you know, and you're meeting other students. You know, you're meeting mm. students from other schools and 
that builds a certain amount of camaraderie and uh, and friend friendship and uh, exposure yeah, those relationships. Yeah, yeah, for relationships and just not something everyone's has the opportunity to have. So okay, so you, so you split the money between sort of academic research and scholarships for students of historical martial arts to travel to events and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a that's a pretty. So I mean, most people go with sort of one version of that, or or so one side of that, or the other, and you just decide. Well, no, it's imaginary money. I can have as much as I like, and you're going to do both. Brilliant. Well, I mean, there's two sides of that coin, right? There's either the people that are doing the studying, or there's people that do the research, and then there's the folks that actually train it in application. So you know. Yeah, absolutely. Hit, hit both. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> excellent well thank you so much for joining me today Aaron it's been lovely seeing you again yeah thanks so much and uh, it was a pleasure being on here thanks for listening I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Erin you can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast while you are there you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book sword fighting for writers game designers and martial artists I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. Thanks, as always, to Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque Harp accents originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. And join us next week when I will be talking to Katie Bowman. This is... August, this is holiday season, so we are pulling out an episode from the archives and reposting it. Katie Bowman is a biomechanist, author of Move Your DNA and the book Grow Wild. She is an expert on biomechanics, and as you can imagine, we get into some very geeky mechanics territory, because I am perhaps not an expert the way she is, but I am certainly obsessed with mechanics and how to hit people harder. Make sure you don't miss it, so subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show, and if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really does help. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week. Mm-hmm.